Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast, live from downtown Manhattan, New York City. I am your host, Austin Philbin. In this episode, the intersection between elite athletes and business, I'll be joined by Frank Zecca, Managing Director at OFS Wealth, and Ryan Cafaro, a professional mixed martial artist. Elite athletes spend years honing their physical skills in order to compete at the professional level. For many of these individuals, training, playing, and recovering consume most of their physical and mental focus. For this discussion, we'll examine the elite athletes from a few different points of view. Frank Zecca, a former collegiate athlete and now head of OFS Wealth, will discuss the tools he uses to assist pros with the management and growth of their wealth. And Ryan Cafaro, professional mixed martial artist, striking coach, and breakfast specialist will discuss his focus and mindset, as well as the lessons he has learned from helping train champions. So before we go any further, Ryan, uh, would you like to explain what it means to be a breakfast specialist? That sounds interesting. Uh, well, I posted that on my uh, my Instagram bio because I uh, sort of had a thing for a while where every couple of posts I would always post a breakfast photo and uh, uh, I, you know, like if you've ever heard uh, The Rock talk about his anchor and his anchor as being his, you know, his 3 a.m. workout. My anchor for a long time has been waking up and going through the ritual of making myself a very well balanced breakfast to fuel myself for the day. So I, I had a tendency to show off my breakfast. Nice, got it. the The focus of today's episode is around the intersection between elite athletes and business as a general category. We'll get more specific into wealth management, financial services, but I think it'd be helpful for anyone that's listening contextually for Frank and Ryan just to give a little bit of your background and what you do, and then we'll delve into uh, some questions that I have for the both of you. So, Frank, if you wouldn't mind, maybe give just a, a brief overview of uh, OFS Wealth yourself and, and how you get to where you are. Sure, Austin. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I am the managing director at OFS Wealth, and we specialize in financial planning and investing for professional athletes. Um, I've been here for 27 years after doing a stint on Wall Street at various jobs, and grew up on Long Island in Brooklyn, the son of a New York City cop. So it's been a it's been an interesting ride, but we have a we have a good group of 18 people, and we work with about 275 professional athletes across all sports, pretty much from around the world. Great. How about you, Ryan? Um, I am a uh, professional. Well, thank you for having me on the show as well. Uh, sure. I'm a professional mixed martial artist, uh, professional Muay Thai fighter, uh, and I currently am a coach to some of the top UFC athletes in the world, including, you know, Frankie Edgar, Sajara Eubanks, Marlon Marias. Um, and I have been 
in the industry of professional fighting since 2009. So about 11 years now. Great. I think it's interesting when you think back, uh, similar to the evolution that we've had within the financial services area, and Frank, you can touch on some of those. Uh, there's also been a, a, a fairly decent amount of what I would say evolution within the mixed martial arts community. And for those that are unfamiliar with what that means, mixed martial arts is just like it sounds. It is a combination of different fighting styles that are utilized in either a cage or a ring. And one of the most prominent brands uh, that people might be familiar with would be the Ultimate Fighting Championship or the UFC. So there's been quite an evolution of, of that sport overall. There are gyms all over the United States now. But I'd be interested, let's start with you, Frank. You know, if you think back to 20 years ago when you started in financial services, to the way in which you're interacting with your clients today, what are some things that have changed um, and what are some things that potentially you could have predicted would have changed and some things that have changed that there's no way that you would have ever thought 20 years ago uh, would end up happening within the wealth management space? Well, the, when, we, when we started, there wasn't a lot of public knowledge about financial planning, investing, athletes. There just wasn't that much money. Um, I work with a couple of families that we have second-generation uh, athletes who their dad or their mom was a professional athlete, and now they are, and the numbers are so different. So it wasn't seen as even a business um, financial planning for professional athletes when I, we started. We were really business managers helping them kind of pay some bills and do some taxes. And then as the wealth started growing, you know, it became more of a, more of a business. There's been more you know, notice on it from the big banks and people saying, Oh, wow, these guys are now making a lot of money. We have to do some stuff. So we've been lucky. We've just evolved. If you tell me what I didn't think I'd be doing. And again, I don't want to, you know, I've been doing it for a, a long time. Um, I didn't think I'd be texting 20 year olds about millions of dollars. And I didn't think I'd be, you know, FaceTiming phone calls and presentations. I never could have dreamed that I would have been doing that when I was getting out of business school and working, you know, on Wall Street back before cell phones and pagers and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> but it's interesting that you mentioned that because <clears throat> if you think about the multi generational families that you have, you could have had a mom or dad who made a very good living, played at a high level in professional sports, and then had a son or daughter who are in the same sport but are now in a totally different wealth stratosphere. So how, how do you deal with that? Like what are, what are some of the things in terms of challenges or uh, issues that you now face given that professional athletes are making significantly more money than they were in the 70s and 80s? So the, the biggest one is all the, the press generally, whether it's, you know, the, the, the digital media or the, or the print media is always focusing on the athletes that went broke. Those are the stories. Even ESPN did a 30 for 30 on going broke pretty much. So no one talks about the successes. So the biggest battle is like, you know, the, the perception that all these athletes have no knowledge, they all make bad mistakes and, you know, there, there's no way to handle it. And I, we have not, I've not seen that. I mean, our business has evolved over time. It's been nice. Most of the professional athletes start by making no money to making a lot of money. So there's a lot of time in there to teach. There's a lot of time to create some financial literacy and some exposure to 
things. So it's not as sudden wealth as people think it is. Um, and I think that's important. But from a multi-generational generational perspective, with social media again today, you read now you're reading about these massive successes, whether it's like startups like like in, you know, like in Uber or, or uh, Facebook or Google. And then you have these massive disasters, whether it be like the stories of Mike Tyson or of, you know, different athletes that, are, that have had struggles with their, with their wealth. So that middle ground is just never covered. And where we play and 98% of our business is in that middle ground with guys that, you know, make their money, do their thing. They're, they're kind of, they're smart, they learn and they make good decisions. Great. So, Ryan, you said 2009. I mean, contextually speaking, 2006, the game was you're backstage in a club with a bunch of other fighters warming up. And if you win, you might make $625 or however many tickets that you can sell. Now, some of that is similar today, but the reality is there are celebrities like Conor McGregor or candidly even the president of the UFC, Dana White, that are now become household names, and fighters are making a lot more money. In addition to money, when you think back to 2009, what are some of the things that have changed from your perspective around the business of mixed martial arts? Well, with, with the, um, you know, the evolution of social media and, and the, the change in the pay-per-view uh, and this new, you know, the new sort of like the zone model of, the way that you can watch sports and, and watch fights, it, every, everything is starting to have like a, a very dynamic shift. Um, people are becoming, fighters in particular, are becoming popular based on their social media, not based on their actual skill sets. Not saying that that is the only thing that's happening, because there are still very good fighters that you know improve and, and move up through the ranks and become popular based on their skills. But, I mean, let's, if you look at what recently just happened on the zone boxing card, you had, um, you had Devin Haney, who's one of the, the greatest professional boxing prospects on his way up, and he was on the undercard of two YouTubers fighting each other. Right. So it, it, it's very interesting in the sense that you can, you can make a lot of money from this position where if you're like a regional circuit fighter, you can still make money. It's... It involves effort and it involves putting yourself out there a lot more than, than I guess, what would be previous. So, for example, you know, in, in 2009, you know, Instagram wasn't a thing. When I made my amateur debut in 2009, uh, when I made my professional debut in 2013, you know, I- Instagram had just started. And now, you know, with, with the people that I work with and the, the fighters that I've networked with, you know, I, with, with my following I've created, you know, I, I'm able to collect a lot more sponsors and create business opportunities. And, you know, because of my resume, I have people literally just sending me direct messages on Instagram asking to train with me. That, that's really interesting. And, and I think it speaks to the fact that technology in all industries, business, uh, social, what have you, is definitely impacting the way in which individuals not only can market themselves, but then can benefit from those marketing efforts. Frank, I'm, I'm interested from your point of view. I, I know we're very familiar with each other and the things that you do for your athlete clients. How much has social, uh, the Instagram, Facebook, impacted not only their ability from a revenue perspective, but 
again, their concentration on being reliant upon a sport or major sponsors to generate revenue versus alternative revenue streams that maybe potentially people wouldn't even think about. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not on the marketing side of the business, but I've worked with the agents and the marketers for so many years. It, it used to be that a, a company would pay an athlete to show up somewhere and pay them, you know, a fixed amount for their day. Um, and then it got to a little bit of likeness. You, you know, you show up for the day, but then they can use that, that footage or those pictures for a certain period of time and you would get paid for that. And now, Social media, that footprint, where, you know, the, the Instagram, the Twitter, the, the YouTube channel, whatever it is, that's what's driving most of the, um, the revenue off of the court, the field, the ring for, for, for many of these athletes. The, the, the corporations are looking at how they, the, how they can influence and help drive sales because at the end of the day, you know, that, that's, what it, that's sort of what it's about. Um, so and it, it used to be that, again, the stars will always get paid, but you're finding this whole other group of athletes and people outside of sports. You know, you just have influencers running around L.A. and Hollywood doing their thing. But you find that it, it you don't have to be a star in your sport. You just have to be active you know, on social media and have, have a following and have, have some sort of a message or a mission attached to that. We had a we have a client who played six, seven years of, uh, six, seven years of professional football, got hurt, had some injuries, has some decent money put away. And he's been doing some digital stuff with athletes kind of as a entertainer and kind of cool things. And it's gotten great traction. He has a whole second career making, you know, six figures do, doing that, which is, which is a pretty cool, which is pretty cool, um, transition from professional sports to the rest of your life, which, you know, in my business, the key for all of these, all professional athletes is find a way to transition from whatever your sport is to what you're going to do when your sport is over. And that, that's, that's a really good segue, which is not only the transition from professional athletics into quote unquote, the real world, but just some of the parallels between elite athletes and the mindset that those individuals need to have and then compare it to elite entrepreneurs and a similar type of mindset that those individuals would need to have. And so both of you are, you know, very well accomplished athletes in your own right. But I think you also have the benefit above and beyond your own experience personally to have experienced training individuals, Frank on the financial side and Ryan actually training them in their craft, you know, what are some things that you take away from these people that separate themselves from being really good to being elite at what they do? Maybe Ryan, if you want to start there, Ryan. Well, it's interesting because in what we've learned about MMA and my sport in particular is that there is no right answer a lot of people do a lot of different things and maintain high levels of success, even though everyone does everything differently. Um, like, to give you an idea, I've trained a UFC athlete, uh, Claudia uh, Gadella, and she is a very, very successful female fighter. She's fought for the world title before, and uh, she's very meticulous about her nutrition. She's very meticulous about the notes she takes when she's training. She's constantly walking around with a notebook. Um constantly studying, evolving, learning, things like that. And, and you can tell that everything she does is very organized and very well-rounded in terms of like when she rests, when she trains, 
how she's resting. Um, so it, it's interesting to see that. And then to also see someone like Frankie Edgar, who I trained, and to see his, his life is, is almost very chaotic in the sense that, you know, he's constantly running around taking care of his three kids. But at the same time, he, he constantly gets his workouts in, and he, he overtrains like a maniac where he's always getting at least two or three workouts in a day, probably seven days a week. But he's a bit of an anomaly in the sense that he has that sort of drive. And, and one of the, the moments that really stood out to me when I was training Frankie once was he was getting ready for a fight, and I was holding a pad for him to throw uh, kicks. And he threw a kick and then sort of winced, and I was like, you know, is your foot okay? And he said, you know, that's bugging me a little bit. And then he threw a kick light because he didn't want to, you know, continue to aggravate his foot. And then some, some, a switch went off in his head, and he just started bombing the kick with his bummed leg as hard as he could repeatedly. So every fighter, you know, has some sort of different variation of, of what makes them great. And it, it's interesting to see the, the differences between all these different fighters and, and how they succeed and how they lead a successful lifestyle in and outside of the cage. That's that's a really good point. How about you, Frank? What do you think? So I, I've seen three things, and they're 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 tied to um, certainly entrepreneurs and for sure the athletes we work with. I, I do see I get to see a lot of the bills what they pay for training, so I know what they do. But watching the most elite players I've worked with over the years, three things stand out. They work harder than everybody else. They just care more and they work harder. And and whether they're God given the best athlete or they're trying to make it, they're harder workers. Um, they also pay attention to the details. Um, and this goes back to what Ryan was saying. The, the elite athletes we have are, it's nutrition, it's training, it's stretching. Um, the little things that go into it, the, the extra shooting if you're a basketball player, the you know, waking, up at, you know, waking up at a different time to train if you have media. Because the other thing that, well, I'll skip that for a second, but those details matter. Um, the pivoting of their careers um, over the course of a being 19 year old professional athlete to being a 34 year old professional athlete, your body changes and your style changes. So you have to be able to adapt and pivot just like an entrepreneur. You know, you work your butt off, things change and you go, wait a second, this isn't working. We got to do this. Or you just can't run as fast or jump as high anymore. So you got to figure out a different way. We have an unbelievable uh, professional basketball player who won the MVP and literally could have won the most improved player the next year. That sounds super counterintuitive, right. but when you're all the best player and everyone's designed to stop you from being the best player, how do you maintain being the best player? You have to change something. So that hard work, the details and the pivoting. And the only other thing I would say, um, it, there, there was a cool line from a, a, an old Robert Redford movie and said, you know, when did Noah build the ark? Right. And he built it before the storm. And what I'm seeing athletes do today is they and we're doing this, too. It's in our best interest to have our athletes play as long as they can. In other words, don't try to train when you're in your 30s. Do things when you're 24, 25, 26 that will allow you to play when you're 33, 34, 35. And I think Ryan can probably Ryan can agree and expound on that a little bit for sure. Because like if you wait till you're getting out of shape, or if you wait to say, hey, you know, it's probably too late. Plan for it. Get Absolutely. in front of it. And yeah, so, so I mean, that, it's it's, that, it's those one are of the, the three biggest. Yeah, those are the three biggest things that that I've seen from from our the the elite guys that we work with. Yeah, to to, to continue to that point and make it specific to business. I think we all know. Uh, people listening, the best time to raise money 
if you're a private business is when you don't need it, right? When things are going well, uh, more than likely, uh, there's not as much pressure to be able to go out and get capital. But if you're in a, a challenging capital market or uh, economic situation, and if you've overhired or you missed out on some technology and, and the company really needs money, I mean, that's not the best situation to be in. What you're talking about is laying down the foundation of proper habits early on your career so that you can have sustainability, which is very similar to a business. And when we talk about building businesses, you have to think about not what you're doing today. You've got a whole host of people, Frank. It's not like what you're doing today. It's building the business for the next five years, for the next 10 years. And Ryan, when you think about your career, I mean, if we go back to 2009, if your desire or if you had made the choice to say, I'm going to give it one shot, I'm going to train as hard as I can, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and if I don't make it, I'm out, you wouldn't have had the sustained career that you have had up until this point in many different ways. I mean, you're still, when's your next fight? Uh, my next fight is uh, November 23rd, so I think, what are we about? Uh, a little shy of two weeks uh, uh, out, something like that. Two weeks out, and it's for a title, right? Yes. it's. Uh, I was supposed to fight the uh, the current Ring of Combat champion who just pulled out about a week and a half ago with a staff infection, so now I'm fighting for an interim title against a replacement opponent. And that's fantastic. So, I mean, this yeah. is something that you've been doing since 2009, yep. amateur to pro, and you've stuck with it. There are many people along that same life cycle that would not have been able to do that or just haven't. Whether they would, could, or should have, they didn't. And so it's a testament to you. I guess I would ask, again, coming back to the, the whole parallel between business, I mean, for you personally, what was that mindset that allowed you to keep going in a sport where there's no guarantees for success? What is it that kept you every day waking up going to the gym, eating correctly, not going out and spending time doing things that you shouldn't be doing because they're unhealthy for you. What was it in your mind that you wanted to accomplish that kept you going? You know, I think one of the most important things for me was studying the, the people that beat me. And when I, when, you, when I go back and I look at the records of these guys, for example, uh, I had a turning point in my amateur career. I was, uh, my record at the time was two wins and two losses, and they put me against an undefeated amateur named Alex Davidoff, who was 4-0 at the time. And we fought at the 2300 Arena in Philadelphia, and it was an absolute barn burner of a fight. And, you know, he ended up beating me by a decision, but... You know, we, we, we brought the house down, and, and people, you know, told me, you know, win, lose, or draw was one of the most exciting fights they had ever seen. And he moved on and continued to be, I believe, 7-0 or 8-0 as an amateur before he went pro. And then as a professional, he lost twice, and he was done. And then that was it. He just moved on. And, uh, and you know, I think, I believe he runs a successful career teaching, uh, you know, kickboxing, owning an academy, things like that. But... When, when I lost to him in such a close way and then I realized, you know, if, if I can hang with these, you know, these undefeated guys and, and, and do what I can, and, and more importantly, I, I thought he was more skilled than I was and more talented. Right. But if you look at our careers now, he's 0-2 as a pro, and I'm fighting for, you know, my second shot at a pro title. And I feel like a lot of it is just based on the fact that I was just willing to stay in it long enough. Right. I, I feel like a, a lot. And then when I was a professional – 
and I lost my professional debut, uh, that guy went 1-0 and then called it a day as well. Right. So my record now is better than him because I'm, despite the fact that I've lost to these guys, the, the losses of, are what have kept me going because I don't think I'm the most talented. I don't think I'm, you know, the best fighter. I just, I'm willing to stick around a lot longer than a lot of these guys that are better than me. And, and it's just, it's persistence and it's, it's the long run. What about you, Frank? I mean, you, you've, like you said, you've done multi-generational planning for families, and I'm sure over the course of your career, you've had athletes who have signed huge deals. They're on the team that was the, the ideal spot for them, given what they thought their skills could bring to that particular team. And then for whatever reason, it just, it just doesn't go well. And I'm sure, you know, some people, even at the elite level, end up and say, all right, I'm just pack it in and then others take that as a challenge and go on to do great things you have any experience with that anything that you'd like to share about the pot what is the mindset that helped the people that actually overcome overcome adversity what worked for them i so i would say it's the it's the fear of failure more than the want to succeed um it's the competitive and the competitive nature and this is this is where i feel like from a Dealing with my clientele, the professional athlete, it, it, it goes kind of hand in hand. When I played, I, I played two sports in college, and I, w- I was just a, I was a, I was a good athlete, but more of a hard worker. I loved the training, I loved the fight, I loved all that stuff. But I usually operated out out of fear of getting cut, fear of fear of. Um, of not keeping your starting position, whatever, whatever it happened to be. And there was no need for that, especially in high school and college, it's a little more complicated, but like there was no real need to have that fear. But most of the elite players I have and and the way they get through it is the fear of failure. Um, they, they just, they have such self pride and, you know, it goes back to that old adage, you know, it's easy to play it's easy to play good and work hard in front of people, but what are you doing when no one's watching and, you know, go back to a business or an entrepreneur. Like most, most people will look at my job description and say, wow, that's a great job. Like, you know, look how cool that is. You get to deal with athletes. Well, at the end of the day, if you actually came in Austin, I know you've been here, if you're in this office, uh, you know, most days of the week, this is far from cool. It's an accounting job. It's like, it's spreadsheets, it's phone calls. It's, it, you know, so it's just like, you know, it's just like the stuff that Ryan has to do. I mean, everyone watches a, uh, everyone watches a match, right. Or, or the fight that's, whether it's on TV or there's a crowd, but no one's seeing what he's doing today. As he said before the call, going from gym to gym, stopping to get water, doing the workout that that's, that that's that piece that people don't get. And that, that's where the long game, the, the long game comes in. I think. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible point. Most of us, <laughs> I, I think, most of us want to believe in this overnight success story, where you see the individual, whether it be in the the field of a play or battle, with their hands raised, winning the championship, or even in business, you know, where a company goes through an IPO sells people are made millionaires and and you often read the the headlines millionaires overnight now look in both instances whether it be athletics or businesses i'm i'm sure that someone could say yeah here's a specific case where something happened overnight Um, but the majority of the situations are not that it is toiling behind the scenes 
working really hard towards a goal that oftentimes shifts depending upon the environment and that you've just got to keep going. When I asked both of you what were the key factors of the elite athletes that you worked with, the examples that you gave were pretty straightforward, outworking or working harder than everyone else, staying focused, and having many different ways to get to the same place, which is being elite. I think it all can be boiled down to and working really hard. And so, well, here, Austin, yeah. not, so two, two quick, one sports story, one business story. Um, I was lucky enough to get to go to a dinner um, that uh, Jeff Bezos spoke at. And they were talking about, like, in the beginning when Amazon was basically a bookseller, right? They were, him and two partners were, like, on the floor in their office, like, boxing up books that were being ordered online and shipping out. So that overnight success of being the first or second, depending on how stock prices are, the richest person in the world, like, yeah, he's on, literally on the floor, like boxing up books, books, and people forget that. The other one, that's the business side. On the sports side, and I use this with, uh, I do a lot of, I, I coach some youth sports. It's kind of a hobby of mine. I like helping out young kids and being involved. But they always talk about, they showed a picture one time where the highlight on their phone of that catch years ago that o Odell Beckham made in the back, back of the end zone with one arm, one hand, right? So I thought that was, that was pretty cool. It's a cool catch. And he's not a client of ours, but it's still a cool story. The next week on the uh, pregame shows in the NFL, they showed that Odell Beckham did make that catch. But before every game, he's in the end zone and he catches like 15 passes with his right hand and 15 passes with his left hand. Right. It's not luck that he made that catch. <laughs> right. it, just, it just isn't. <laughs> right. Right. Anyway. I mean, I think it's a good point. I mean, Ryan, well, we can we can throw it to your sport specifically. <laughs> there was the Ben Askren and uh, Jorge Masvidal fight that ended in very quick fashion, in two seconds, where Masvidal flew across the ring and nailed him with the flying knee. I, I, you would assume that that had been practiced, wouldn't you? Um, so believe it or not, I was actually in Las Vegas uh, when I was talking about training Claudia. She was on the undercard uh, on that card, and we were actually working out at the UFC Performance Institute, and I firsthand was watching uh, Jorge Masvidal practice that flying knee. Right. So, <laughs> so he was quite literally practicing that flying knee during the week, and I was watching him, you know, slide back, jump knee, or at one point. And at one point, they they brought it out later where he had texted uh, his coaches, or his coaches had texted his teammate and said, "Masvidal is going to run out and throw this flying knee right off the bat." And right. it was actually, it, you know, I don't mean to, to brag a little bit, but I kind of Jorge Masvidal before he did it because. In 2018, I fought somebody named Jared Mercado, and I watched tape on him, and he said how when he starts every fight, he likes to run to the center of the cage and sort of use that to assert his dominance, like, this is my cage. And uh, I listened to that in an interview, and then I talked to my coach, Aaron, and I was like, why don't we just sprint out and flying name in the face right off the bat since he runs to the middle? And then... We practiced it for a couple weeks, and then warming up in the back room, I was, you know, practicing, like, putting my hand on the cage and rocketing off the cage and throwing a flying knee. And my coach was like, you know, if you're going to do it, do it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. And then as soon as the bell rang, I sprinted out and threw a flying knee as hard as I could, and I dropped him with it. I didn't get the finish in the first round, but I, if, if that knee had connected slightly to the right, I probably would have had the fastest knockout in MMA history because it hit him one second into the fight. Right. I mean, so to, to kind of summarize what, we, what we've all been talking about, 
though the the moments, the end results that seem so instantaneous or almost Hollywood-esque in reality, oftentimes from a business or even a sport like mixed martial arts where it can be over so quickly are often the result of very careful planning, very careful choreography, and that the end result, whether it is a knockout or a sale of a business, is actually the result of a lot of hard work and effort. And there's not really an easy way uh, just to get to where you want to go. It's, it's okay to, th- to want something, but it's very different to put in the work to get there. I have a question for you, and this one for you, Ryan, might be a little uh-huh. bit more challenging uh, to answer. But you know, how, how difficult do both of you think that it is for athletes to move on? And for you, Frank, you know, how do you help individuals think about the next stage of their career? Um, same thing for you. How are you, Ryan, thinking about the next stages of your career? And um, what are some pitfalls that that can occur as you go through this transition process from being a professional athlete to whatever your next stage of your your career is? So why don't why don't we start with Frank? So the, the, this has been a big topic of conversation because I I think that in in my industry because the general rule of thumb is seventy percent of athletes go broke within three years of their career ending. Um, and those are usually, that's usually equated to, again, bad investments, money being stolen, you know, lack of education. The real truth there, um, in, in my experience and talking to others that have my a similar job to me in our, in our industry is that there's, there's just no second career. And if you, and the mo, the only thing that's written in the papers is, is all the stars, Tom Brady's and people like that who have all this money, but the most athletes just don't have enough money to play five or six years in professional sports and then never work again. So that, that transition is, is the most important factor. And what, what you find in the successes is they just had, um, who was just on TV, Phil Rizzuto. I watched the history of the Yankees. Phil Rizzuto played 13 years for the New York Yankees, you know, whatever, seven or eight world championships, you know, hall of fame, all-star a couple of times. He was a broadcaster for 38 years yep. for the Yankees. So he, he had, you know, three times the three times the career span of being a professional. And he did that. And this is again what we tell most of most of the guys we work with. He he was able to get that job based on how he carried himself during his playing career in the city he played. If you're you as an athlete, you get to be around whoever you want to be around. You get access to the CEOs, the owners, to uh, sweet owners to, um, endorsers to just regular people who want to be around you. If you're, if you're a good person and you use those resources and, and you're authentic and people, whatever the, the business happens to be, and they like you, you can set yourself up in that city for a very long time. And that's the most important thing when you think about, and again, I'm talking most about the team sports. I know Ryan, your, your sport is pretty polar, probably there's probably no money or a lot of money. Um, but the, if the average athlete is four years and the average salary is $1.5 million, there, it's just not enough money not to have a transition. So we find it, it's not really in the financial planning books, but for financial planning for a professional athlete transition and having a second, a second game plan is, it has to be a priority. Yeah. How about you, Ryan? 
Um, I, I would agree completely. Um, you know, I'll, currently I would say for, for mixed martial artists, there, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities to transition into a job outside of martial arts if, you're, if you do not do the correct things, especially when you're in your current career. I mean, if you look at some of these, these uh, fighters, um, if you remember uh, Joe Diesel Riggs, yeah, yeah. he's fighting on the same card as me. Oh. And, I, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, Joe, Joe Riggs, I watched Joe Riggs fight in high school. What are you doing fighting on a regional promotion with me? You know, hopefully he doesn't listen to this because it sounds insulting. But <laughs> the point I'm making is that somebody of his caliber who's fought for the world title before shouldn't have to continue to fight on the regional circuit. That says one of two things to me. That either says he didn't handle his finances appropriately or he still has that, that fire that just hasn't been quenched, which is a, a completely different issue in itself that needs to be tackled on a completely different podcast. Right. But the, the point I'm making is that if, if you don't do the right things in the martial arts in the martial arts uh, community and in your career, you definitely will not have a good future uh, aside from maybe going into you know bare knuckle boxing, which is definitely something I do not want to do when I'm done fighting. Right. Um, but I, I would also agree a lot on on what was said previously. If you do the right things and you talk to the right people and you network appropriately and you are a, a genuine person, there are a lot of opportunities that can be provided to you. Um, you know, my my teammate Paul Felder, who's currently in the UFC, he's now one of the top broadcasters and uh, color commentators for the sport because you know he had an acting background and you know he talked to the right people and did the right things, nailed the audition. And so, you know, he's set for life as a commentator when he's done fighting. And, and not a lot of people are, are in these sort of positions. But if, like you said, if you do the right things to prepare, that you can, um, you can definitely set yourself up. You just have to be smart about your finances, the, the money that you do make when you have it, and, and to not, you know, go crazy and get sucked into the, the party rock star lifestyle. Yeah. I think you both used similar words, which was authentic or authenticity and being uh, genuine. For me, the way that I, I look at individuals that are interested in becoming an independent financial advisor or becoming a client of Dynasty, above and beyond the, the process of getting them comfortable with what that means... I always say at some point, the reality is the job that I want to, what I want to do as a, as a person is help you make a decision. I want to give you as much information as possible. I want to be able to answer your questions in an authentic way only because I feel that if nine out of 10 people don't decide to become a client, at least those 10 people will have received some information that might be helpful towards them in making a decision. And that's why I bring that up is because I think it comes back to if you're out there and you're doing the right things and whether it's lending a hand to hold, you know, pads for somebody that are get, that's getting ready for a fight or it's being able to sit down in the middle of a house in Detroit, Michigan um, and talk to a family to get them comfortable around you taking care of their children's financial advice, financial assets, et cetera. I mean, that, that's the extra level. You, we talk about this, Frank, you and I talk about this all the time. The, 
the way in which people become a client as an athlete is not by looking at a website. It's not by you showing up after the first contract. It's by you going and sitting with mom and dad or whomever the guardians are, whoever the coaches are, and letting them know that you're there to help. And they're going to make a decision. And sometimes it's hard to make that decision because there's a whole host of contributing factors, other people involved. But ultimately, if you do the right thing and show up, you have a much better chance than saying, why is nothing happening? Or it's really hard to break into this line of business. Yeah, I mean, for uh, we're for us, it's all in the it's all in the details on the front end. I'll meet a, I'll meet a family, and it's a great meeting, and we have sort of a track record in the business, and we know people. We could point to some clients, but almost every new client that we work with, um, I we try to go see them and create a sort of a client experience, and we're trying to see them once every three or four weeks while they're not paying us any money on the front end to build the, build the trust, because the quicker we can. The quicker we can create some financial literacy and create the level of trust, the more we can do what's right for the clients. So on the front end, it's all about being there, getting, you know, again, it's not glamorous. It's getting on a plane, hanging out with mom and dad and understanding the different, the family dynamic and talking to the, the player and just making sure they get it. Um, it it's, it, it's developing the trust. And again, it's the same thing as if you're a, you know, you're a trainer for, and Ryan can, can talk about this as well. If you're, if you're going to train somebody in a different manner than what they're used to doing it, they have to trust that you're doing it for them. hundred percent. And they, although you're getting paid, I mean, they all know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think Ryan, I don't think you do it for free. You train people and you get fees, right? Or you get yeah, absolutely. You, you, or something. So at that point they have to trust you. They, they have to know that you're doing what's best for them and you're going to, you're, you're going to be there. And, Part of being there is not when things are going well. I, I found also over the years I get the most I get the most utility in the client relationship. Like I want to be the guy who's showing up or calling when no one is. Right. You know, kind of after an injury or when things aren't going well, or you know, instead of going seeing a player in L.A. or New York, where you know, it, not to, I don't want to make fun of cities, but you know, there's a lot of things for those players to do. Go see them in Milwaukee in the winter or Indiana <laughs> when they're on a road trip with nothing <laughs> right. to do, you know, and they're sitting in a hotel room and you can right. show up. I mean, I, all that matters to get to the final goal. The final goal is to be able to give the right advice or the right training and have that player listen and act upon, you know, your advice. And, and that's, that's, it, it takes time to acquire that. Yeah. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, it, it definitely takes a lot of time to build up the trust, um, to, to do something like that. Um, the, the, these athletes, a lot of them have very small circles. Frankie Edgar has a small circle. Paul Felder has a small circle. They don't want to work with people that they don't trust. And for you to, to, to break into that circle of trust, it, it, it involves a, a couple of things. I think it involves competency in your skill set. It involves confidence in what you teach. And it also involves, like we said before, being authentic and being genuine. Because a lot of these people... They're around yes men all the time, and they're around these people that just want to ride the coattails of successful athletes. And when they're in it long enough, it, it's a matter of time before they start recognizing who is there to help you and who is there to help sell right. on your name. I mean, those are, those are great points. And, and there's actually a very direct relationship, I think, to to wealth management by what you just laid out of, of how to gain confidence or favor from somebody that you're training, right? Mm -hmm. So many people say, 
I'd like to get involved in the ultra high net worth space, or I'd like to get involved with the athlete space. Frank, you hear it all the time. And just like anything else, in order to do that, you have to be able to have a set of skills or competency. And then you also have to be confident in those set of skills and be able to get to those individuals and then do it in a way that they can understand it's a mutually beneficial relationship. If your whole press into something new from a business perspective in wealth management is simply to make more money, then the likelihood of you having success in that particular segment is going to be limited. But if you take the time to understand what really matters to a doctor, to a pilot, to uh, an educator, and then you're able to develop a team and a set of deliverables that can help those individuals with their financial life, I mean, that's it. And it's when I say that's it, I mean, that's, that's the hard part. Like getting to that's it, all the toiling behind the scenes, that's what it takes in order to be successful in certain niches. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears. Prior to both of you coming on the line, I had a conversation. We were talking about how athletics is one of the last kind of meritocracies there are. Um, I mean, I'm sure, again, people could point to other ones. And what I mean more specifically about that is in sports, there's generally not a lot of uncertainty. I mean, of course, there's draws and ties and things of that nature, but mostly you have a winner and a loser. And in business, that, that's, not, that's not always the case. I mean, it can be boiled down, but I would argue that there, there's less transparency around what winning as an employee, what winning as a business, what winning as any other number of variables means um, on a day-to-day basis. So I'll ask both of you, I mean, Ryan, from your sport and Frank, from all of your experience within various sports, what are one or two lessons that somebody that's an entrepreneur um, could learn from sports or from athletes or from any of the people that you work with? So why don't we start with you, Ryan? Um, I would say that if, if there's something that an entrepreneur can, can take away from the, the athlete, uh, some, some of it has to do with, you know, just, just taking care of yourself. Um, I, I think that too many entrepreneurs get too caught up in, in their business and their craft, and then they don't take a step back and really make sure that they're, they're maintaining home base, which is their body. Um, and it, it seems kind of superficial, and, but if you don't take care of your health and your well-being, your entrepreneur career is going to be very, very short, just like it would be as a pro athlete. Yep. You know, if you're, if you're one of the pro athletes that isn't a genetic freak that can eat McDonald's all the time and you're continuing to do something like that, your pro career, you are doing yourself an extreme disservice and cutting your career short by doing things like that. What about you, Frank? Yeah, Ryan, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm not an, I guess technically I'm an entrepreneur. I just don't feel like one, but I've taken it and I, I take that to heart. I've taken it upon myself for the last like seven, eight years to just stay in great shape for a couple of reasons. One, um, I've worked too hard into my fifties that I want to be able to enjoy the next 20 years. And whether it's one of the trainers told me, 
but one of the players, I'm like, well, how do I change from when I used to work out as a football player and a lacrosse player to how do I work out when I'm 50? They're like, look, you guys got like core strength, balance, all the things you lose in your 70s. Start working on that right now. So I've actually started doing that. And what I what I found is the athletes I work with really, really like the fact that I do that. And part of it is they're so much younger than me. If I want to keep my sort of client base, I got to be around for a while. Like we basically just say exactly what you're saying. I mean, some of the clients we signed this summer are 19, 20 years old. So, you know, you got to, what's the point of working so hard if I'm not going to be able to enjoy it or be able to do it or be able to go walk through an airport with bags and go see these guys in five or six years. So that's a, I'm glad to hear you say that. One of the things I think that um, the entrepreneurs can learn from the athlete is, and I don't care if it's a team sport guy or a individual athlete, you got to trust your team. And you have to build a good team around you. Obviously, the GMs are building the teams around some of the, around some of the, um, some of the star athletes. But you have to build a team, trust them, let them do their job, so you can excel at your job. I wish I was better at it in my own career. It's something I strive for. I'm just not very good at it. But I've seen business owners who who, who do a, a great job of that. So I think if you're an entrepreneur and you want to look at Roger Federer, Roger Federer's team that's around him, the reason he appears the way he does, whether it's his look, his fitness, his talent, his wealth, he clearly has a strong team around him that he lets them do their jobs. So that would be the biggest takeaway, I would say. And people kind of forget about what goes on behind the scenes for a lot of these a lot of these people. Yeah, that, that that's really interesting. And I think it comes back to some of the comments that you made earlier, Ryan, around the difference in training style and the inner circle of individuals, I would take it a step further, Frank. I would say that building the right team is incredibly important and obviously the foundation plus in a business and, and candidly probably even with, well, not probably, definitely with sports. But then above and beyond that, it's like once you have the team in place, how do you motivate those people? And I think one of the challenges that entrepreneurs have is that they assume that each person wants to be motivated the same way that they do. Now, if the three of us were here in New York City today and we went outside and we we're like, all right, let's go and find a gym, go for a run or whatever, we're probably very similar in motivation, which is we want to be the best out of that group or at least compete with the other individuals we are in a room, on the, on the road, whatever. But that's not the way that everyone is built. Like there are certain people that shy away a little bit from competition or who aren't motivated by someone screaming in their face. So I guess my question to both of you, um, Frank for you and then also Ryan for you, is how do you find that? How do you find the right way to motivate people? What do you look for from a business perspective, Frank? And then for you, Ryan, again, when you're coaching people, is there a different way in which you interact with Claudia versus the way that you would interact with Frankie. So why don't we start with you, Ryan? Um, I would say that, yeah, there, there's a couple different athletes that I, I have to work differently with. Um, like w with someone like a Frankie Edgar, who is an absolute, like a, a horse, he just goes. The, like with, with someone like him, the, the biggest issue is actually not overdoing it. Right. Because you have to, you have to have with with an elite athlete like Frankie, you have to know when to pump the brakes and when to not overdo it. Because uh, Frankie's one of those athletes that's so disciplined, and he's such a you know he he just listens to his coaches and has such trust in his team, like we talked about, that whatever his coaches say, he'll do. 
if his coach says throw a thousand kicks until you run yourself into the ground, he might roll his eyes, but then he'll do it anyways. Right. So with someone like that, you really have to to, to watch how you coach them. And then on the other hand, if if there's someone like um, like a Claudia or or in the case of like a, a very interesting fighter that I've coached as well as uh, Lance Palmer, he just won the uh, the PFL uh, Lance the million the party. dollar tournament. Yeah. Yeah. So I've worked with Lance, and, and Lance is another fighter that's the, he's very peculiar in the sense that out of all the people I've ever worked with, when I show them a technique and I say, you know, does this make sense to you? Most people, even if it doesn't make sense, they'll sort of nod their head and be like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Lance looks me dead in my eyes and goes, no, it does not make sense. I don't get it. And I was like, when I first happened, I was like, are, are you mad at me? He's like, no, I just, I don't get it. So then I have to go back and re-explain the, the technique to him in a way that he ultimately gets it. So the, the, the point that I'm making is that, you know, you definitely do have to find a way to motivate different people in different ways. But I think in the grand scheme of things, if we go back to the team that you surround yourself with, you're not surrounding yourself with your team. You're surrounding yourself with yourself in the sense that you are, we've all heard this quote, you're the conglomeration of the top five people you spend your time with. Yeah. And if you don't, if, if you spend time with, you know, a bunch of athletes that half-ass things, you're going to become a half-ass athlete. So you need to make the, the hard decision, even if you like this person, to spend less time with that person, to find someone that motivates you. Like uh, UFC newcomer Sean Brady, he motivates. He's a psycho. He works out four to five times a day. Probably too much, but I draw motivation from that because I always think about, what am I doing on this day? Am I doing enough? I bet Sean Brady's doing a lot. You know what I mean? So I... I go back and I think about these things, you know. Uh, Paul Felder, rain, rain, sleet, or snow, he shows up even if he's super hungover after, you know, a night party. He comes in, and his anchor is he rips those five five-minute rounds on pads with me. Right. I've seen him in his best shape and in his worst shape, and at the end of the day, he still comes in, and he rips five five-minute rounds on pads. He's always prepared for a world title fight, a five five-minute round fight, because he always does it. So it's like spend your time with the people – that are successful. And I feel like if you do that, it, it's almost inevitable for you to become successful. I like that. I like that. Frank. So going, I mean, going back to your original question, I learned, um, uh, reaching the, the, the players who are, they're all sort of different. And the way I was brought up with a dad is New York city cop. He was, he was great dad, unbelievable opportunities he gave us and how hard he worked but he raised my brother and i exactly the same way my personality was if you yelled at me i was going to prove you wrong right. and i was going to say you know watch this and my brother would sort of shut down and he ended up playing other sports and it wasn't for him being weak or my dad being mean or me being psychotic it was just people were different and then i kind of looked at that early on in the career of working with so many different players and then when i was coaching the youth sports i realized that it was the same thing. You have 18 kids on a football lacrosse team that you're coaching and you, you have to, one kid, again, you yell at him, he shuts down. The other kid, you yell at it, you motivate it. The other kid doesn't want to play. You have to coax him. Those, those, um, emotional quote, high emotional quotient and understanding what people are. It matters. I have two players that I work with who are very wealthy, probably both walking into the hall of fame. They have the, they, they're married the same amount of time. They make the same amount of money. The, the, the portfolios that they have are virtually the same. I have to have two completely different conversations about the same thing with each one of them. And it's hard, 
um, to do because you have to be on kind of be on your toes and understand understand your audience a little bit. But understanding that everyone processes information differently and how you reach how you reach those people that's what allows you to get the most. You know, again, I'm not doing what Ryan's doing, but how you get the most out of them. Um, or how you provide the most information, or right? give them the most opportunity to see the right choices to make. Um, I, 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 that's, I think that was the first part of your question. Yeah. The the uh, the the other thing that I think is is interesting between the athlete and in my world, like financial planning or anything else, is these guys are goal driven. So some financial advisors would be very technical on the financial side. I just want to make I just want to make it sort of fun for them in a way. Right. So they're so goal oriented and used to itineraries and used to meeting certain objectives and metrics that I just give them goals. So I say you got to save this much. And I found over the years that when they don't save, they're like, oh my god, I failed. I didn't reach that goal. Or I didn't do as many push ups, or I didn't take as many three pointers as I, I wanted. I, I had a client who was spending too much money, and I told them if you keep your credit card bill under X amount. I'll give you an extra $20,000 to spend this year. I mean, yeah. I wasn't giving him my money. I was giving him his own money. This player was actually texting me saying, how am I doing? How's my credit card spending? I want to, I want, I want to show you, I can do it. Right. It's kind of interesting how they're wired. Yeah. Those are all really good points. <laughs> Guys. Uh, I want to thank both of you very much for uh, joining me today. I, I found this to be super fun and I really appreciate both of you. Thanks everybody. Appreciate it. Yeah. Have a yeah, good day. Thanks. Thank you for having me. See you guys. All right, take care. Thank you very much for listening to the Powering Independence Podcast. Also want to thank our guests, Frank Zecca and Ryan Cafaro. And as a reminder to listeners, please stay tuned for the next episode.